I felt like what I was doing was important. Everyone was kind of in it together. Everyone was facing this, trying to do the best that they could in the situation, um, which I felt like in A&E they seemed to do. We have had a lot of people stick by the club. Some of the youngsters, I think, have drifted. But once we can get a home for everybody to meet, come back together as a family again, then I'm sure they'll come back. It's school holidays, it's perfect time for them to come back and start back training. Hello, hope you're well. This is the England Athletics Podcast. Well, it's great to see a bit more track and field activity springing up around the country, around the world. Let's hope it continues. Have to say though, lockdown has led to some great innovation, not least some good chats recorded over Zoom in this podcast, although of course I may be biased. Our latest chat is with Phil Sessman, a distance runner who is twice a British medalist over 3,000 metres indoors. And he's been working as a junior doctor in A&E during the coronavirus crisis. Interesting insight from him, as well as from Peterborough and Neen Valley, where Chris Jones has been on a socially distanced club visit. First of all, I asked Phil Sessman how he got into sport. I swam when I was younger at a swimming club called Beckenham Swimming Club, uh, where I was from in London. My brother was a haemophiliac, um, so his blood doesn't clot. So our grandpa and my mum was always very keen on us kind of doing non-impact sports. Um, so they kind of pushed us into the swimming. And I think kind of with the swimming, it just builds that really good aerobic base when you're young. Um, and I was lucky I'd do the local school cross country down in Bromley Borough. Blackie from Bromley used to hand out leaflets at the end, kind of to the top, top 50 finishers in each race. And it kind of just started from there, kind of went along for, well, this is great. Quite enjoy this and just kept doing it really that's really interesting about the the swimming and the, and the non-contact sports can you remember your first call up your first british or english international best yes yes so i i started doing a bit of indoor racing a few years ago there's a few kind of early season they take a team to austria and um bratislava in slovakia England athletics um, and kind of targeted one of those vests and was fortunate enough to get one for for the Slovakia race. I think maybe 2017, I think maybe January. But what did you gain from that experience? What did you learn from being in that atmosphere environment? I think the big thing was to kind of learn that, okay, this is all just a stepping stone um, and to be kind of proud of what you'd achieved so far. But let's see how far I can push this now. No one there saw that as the peak of what I could achieve. The team managers, my coach, my my training partners, they didn't really see that as, oh yeah, well done, you've, you've got your England best, that's kind of you done. How are you going to be better? How are you going to get more from this? 2019, the start of 2019, must have been a special moment. You were in a Great Britain vest at the um, international cross-country event, known then I think as the Great Sterling Cross-Country. You were in the lead of the relay, you handed over to Laura Muir, you're on TV as well, but what was that moment like? That yeah, that was great. That that was I, I kind of always said to myself I wanted a GB vest. It was that and the Blackie from Bromley 1500 meter club records were the two kind of life goals in in the running. I think Sterling was it was a really proud moment to get the vest for the Eurocross, um, but I didn't really feel like I performed 
that well there. I felt like I performed okay, but I don't think I did anything great. Whereas four weeks later um, at Sterling, I, I performed a lot better. There was a Spanish lad who put seven seconds into me at the Euro Cross, um, and then we ran the same time at Sterling. So it, it, it just felt like a much better performance. Um, and obviously the team winning was a lot nicer as well. So yeah, I was quite proud of that one. I think the biggest thing was having the quad bike really, really close, especially in the first half. It kind of gets you a bit, probably a bit too excited. And, and I had to make sure I didn't go off too quickly. Obviously, handing over to uh, Laura um, when a lot of the event, she was kind of the pin-up girl of the event uh, that year. So that was, that was quite exciting. You get close to someone who is quite well known in the track and field world. And you're suddenly, I don't know, rubbing shoulders with people at a, at a higher level to maybe what you, you do on an everyday basis. Is that just something that comes quite naturally, is quite normal? Or is it very exciting to you, you know, as a, as a fan of the sport? I am a big fan of the sport. I watch, I watch athletics, all disciplines of athletics I really enjoy to watch. But I think I'm lucky in where I train in Leeds. Um, there's a lot of high-level athletes just based at Headingley kind of thing. So, yeah, you don't really act or feel any different kind of around people like Laura or others. And obviously Alex ran the same time as Laura that day, Alex Bell, who I train with. And there's other athletes in Leeds, um, the Brownlee brothers and stuff, who are as well-known or is, is known in the public conscience as, say, Laura is. But obviously it's still exciting. We might as well talk about Leeds because... That's where you've been based for a number of years, a strong representative for, for Leeds University in Bucks competition, where you've done your, your medical studies. So tell me a bit about your decision to go there to do medicine. I've been in Leeds for nine years now. It was the only university that offered me even an interview for medical school. You only get four applications uh, with UCAS for medical school. And it's, it is difficult and I didn't want to stay in London or, or anywhere near London. Leeds, um, a great city and a great kind of setup for athletics or, or sport in general offered me a place. And I just decided to stay afterwards. I just enjoy it. And why choose a, a medical career in particular? A lot of athletes do teaching, others sort of sports science or, or sports business themed careers. That's quite a hard one. I'd like to say I'm really compassionate and empathetic, but I don't, I don't think I could honestly say that that's particularly why I, I picked medicine. I kind of went down the route of I was strong at maths, strong at science at school. Your teachers and, and your parents and your grandparents, I wouldn't say push, but they kind of guide you towards a career in medicine as, as this is a viable option and a very good one. I wouldn't say it was down to kind of the reaction you, you get when, when people ask you, oh, what do you want to study? And you say medicine or, but it was, it was very obvious that you get a positive reaction when you say medicine or, or I want to be a doctor. Um, and that does when you're quite young, maybe a bit immature, that does have a bit of an influence on you. It's something that I felt I was capable of. Um, and I thought it would, it would be a good challenge. So I'd, I'd go for that. Yeah. I, I empathize there when you said uh, about family, perspective you know the sort of my son my daughter is going to be a, a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> just tell me to me about your setup and, and how it works because I understand that you work part-time yeah I laid the foundations for that um, during the final year of medical school they they gave us one lecture about an hour at the start of fifth year saying um, these are the options if you want to go part-time um, and I think the NHS has is, is got a lot more open to um, 
doctors working part-time, especially in the early years of their junior career. I was fairly serious about my athletics in the last few years in medical school and just enjoyed it so much. I thought that this is what I want to kind of pursue um, while I've still got the youth to do so. And I spoke to the Yorkshire and Humber um, Foundation School and they they were really supportive. They said, yeah, give it a go. And so throughout my um, foundation training, I've been working at 60%. Um, so that's, that's essentially three days a week. Um, and especially during my foundation year one, I had reduced um, kind of on-call commitments. Um, so I wasn't working the weekends or, or the night shifts that my colleagues were. Obviously, that affects your pay packet quite a lot. And it also takes a lot longer to progress through the junior ranks. But I felt that that was a um, a perfectly okay trade-off in order for me to continue train- training. Is that's that's the way I'm still doing it now. Um, so I'm I've got another ten months of my foundation year two to finish. Now that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. Do you find that there's a certain amount of flexibility and understanding both from a coaching and athletic side, the NHS, that they both understand that you're balancing those two things? Yeah, I, I think definitely. From a coaching perspective, um, my coach, Andy Henderson, um, he's extremely supportive, definitely focuses on kind of like holistic coaching. So so his athletes have to be kind of happy, comfortable um, at a good point in their lives. Otherwise, they're not going to perform. He's very open to kind of changing things as my schedule allows. And I kind of send him kind of a month in advance, my rotor. Um, and we kind of base our um, training plans around that. And then in terms of work, I'd say on the whole, they've been extremely supportive. Obviously, there's one or two instances where I'd like to get a certain race, a certain weekend shift off at a very late notice, and they're unable to do that, and that's that's understandable. They've got a um, department staff and a service to provide to the public. But on the whole, they've they've been really supportive, have allowed me to kind of pick and choose shifts or rotor patterns. I can not work Tuesdays, which allows me to kind of focus on that one key session of the week. That at least gives a bit of structure and stability as well, which is which has been really good. And what have the last six months been like? Your ability to focus on being an athlete as normal has changed. And I can imagine that the demand for you to be involved from a medical perspective has increased. So just tell me what your situation has been like. I said that the biggest change has been I, I had a six-month sabbatical planned um, where I'd, I'd probably just pick up the odd locum shift, maybe one one shift a week kind of thing, um, just to keep some clinical experience and earn a bit of upkeep money and then focus on the athletics this summer. Um, so that was going to be to try and make the European Championships, just really see how high up at British Championships I could get. So obviously with, with COVID happening, that got cancelled or, or I postponed that. I've just been working the same amount of kind of 60% around three shifts a week. What's the environment been like at work? Have you been continuing doing shifts in, in accident and emergency? And if so, what has it been like? I've, I've been lucky in a way that all of the A&E and colleagues of mine, um, the junior colleagues, we, we were kept in, in A&E rather than move on like we normally would have um, to different departments. COVID-19, it caused a, a big decrease in attendances at A&E. Um, I think people were a lot less wanting to go to, to accident and emergency for small issues and 
there was less accidents happening, less people going out, um, drinking and getting into fights or, or everything else that causes people to come into A&E. We had the patients with COVID, um, but often we would kind of see them and, and get them up to a medical ward very quickly or wherever they needed to go. I felt supported by my senior colleagues who were all kind of faced with this challenge at the same time and they all seemed to deal with it well. Um, I can't speak for the rest of the hospital. I think they had a lot bigger changes. A lot of the kind of surgical specialties suddenly then had to look after medical patients. And I think that may have been challenging for them. That's really interesting about the reduction in small ailments. And actually, it does make a lot of sense. You touched on there the sort of togetherness and the spirit among your your colleagues. And in that sense, it must have been enriching to be part of a, a team like that during a pandemic it, it was yeah I, I felt valued I felt like what I was doing was important and I felt that everyone was kind of in it together everyone was facing this trying to do the best that they could in the situation um, which I felt like in A&E they seemed to do and then what has it been like to see the support for the NHS from the general public that's obviously been nice um, and yeah you do have probably a bit more of a spring in your step when you see all of that go down the road and you see the rainbows and people with windows and stuff and that's quite nice. I always felt people were supportive of the NHS anyway. Um, I never really felt that people took it for granted as such. I thought that that's that's one of the things that in this country we do really value Um, and it may be the other public services that people kind of don't value quite as much as they should do. I wondered whether the uh, kind of symbolic nature of the, the clap, the, the weekly clap, was it just a, a half-hearted gesture when actually you would have wanted something something more in terms of support? I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. Difficult one. I hadn't thought about it too much. I know my colleagues, they enjoyed it. Some would make the effort to go outside the hospital at eight o'clock on the Thursday evening shifts. I wasn't one of those. I'm not sure why as such. I kind of maybe felt that. Personally, I didn't really feel like I needed it but it was also kind of to show support for your colleagues as well so I I definitely saw the the value in that Um, I'd be clapping for my colleagues kind of thing so I did partake in it when at home so I I would kind of hear people back in a few pots and plans and I'd run outside that was that was the way I'd yeah I understand and what you're what you're also showing there Phil is I think the sort of I'm just doing my job nature of people who work you know in, in the medical field and that sort of professionalism of, of getting on with the job. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's a good way of summarising it. It was, um, that's our job. That's what we signed up for. That's what we wanted to do. Hi, my name is Abigail Irosaru and you're listening to the England Athletics Podcast. Well, really interesting stuff there from Phil Sessman and you'll hear more from him later including his targets for the upcoming British Championships, or perhaps the British Championships that just happened, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. For now, though, let's head from Leeds, where Phil Sessman is based, to Peterborough and Neen Valley, where Chris Jones has been, to find out how they've been getting on and how they've managed to tackle the challenges of the last few months. So I'm here with Russ Prosser. It's Monday evening here in Crowland, the club Peterborough and Neen Valley is uh, training here, group of youngsters, beautiful evening and Russ, you're gradually r- returning to training yes, we are. after a long sabbatical yes, with COVID-19 yeah, yeah, impacts. Yeah. What's it been like? It's been uh, challenging, challenging. Uh, we started off with the young people being sent to training at home 
Then we had the guidance to say we could coach five young people. We managed to get ourselves together. Level one coaches came down. We were having 30 odd people come down. Parish council were very good to allow us to put a track down. They were pleased that the kids were getting out. And it came at the right time for the kids themselves. Um, we've moved on now because England athletes have moved on and the guidelines have moved on. Uh, we can now have 12 athletes training in a COVID friendly environment, which we've worked on and I hopefully we've adhered to and not let it get in the way. We just need the competition really next. Things are looking bright on the track front as well. So you're due to move back to the track, we think imminently. And I'm with Elaine Larkins here, chair of the club. Uh, obviously the local authority and the leisure contractor have been impacted significantly by COVID-19 and the related financial issues uh, but but you're hopeful about the future yeah we're very hopeful I mean the track uh, the repairs are complete but the hammer cage upgrade is not done yet they're hoping that that will be done by the end of this month then we can have our throws and discus and such like superb and once you're on the track reintroduction to training on the track and then possibly some Low-level competition to start off with and building up maybe into some fixtures before the end of September against some other clubs. Is that, is that the plan? It would be nice. Both Elaine and I have spoken about having uh, at least inter-club competition to get things going. I've contacted a few contacts. I've been with, uh, had a chat with Bedford. I've had a chat with Norwich. If we just do something ourselves with those clubs, it will be something. We could rescue some of the season. Hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel, but as we were saying earlier, we just needed to be pragmatic as a sport and st stick together, really, because our fear, I guess, was the longer that we couldn't do anything, people might drift away. Have you, have you noticed that in terms of membership? We have had a lot of people stick by the club. Some of the youngsters, I think, have drifted, but once we can get a home for everybody to meet and um, come back together as a family again then i'm sure they'll come back it's school holidays it's perfect time for them to come back and start back training i think you know that's what we need to do we'll we'll reach out to them once we can get onto the track properly and we're all comfortable with everything we'll we'll reach out to them and get them back with the schools closing down uh, prior to summer holidays We've missed out on, because we've got good links with the schools, uh, both in Peterborough and in South Lancashire, we've missed out on spotting the new talent. And they haven't been able to come down and find us either, because those early days there wasn't any club meeting up. So our membership has hung on, but we haven't got that new breed of under-13s or perhaps that under-15 who hasn't come, but suddenly has grown and developed into a sport. Um, so that's the ones we've got to try and catch. And Peterborough as a city is a proud heritage of producing really good young athletes and some really good coaches, of course. I think back to the likes of, mentioned Dick Hughes, you know, and uh, Mike McNeil, of course, uh, who's still coaching in the sport. I think he's based out of Mildenhall now. Kelly Southerton, who's now our Commonwealth Games team leader for 2022. Femi Akinzanya, uh, one of our national coach mentors, now director of athletics at Loughborough University. Louise Hazel. Those athletes who competed in the kind of heyday, if you like, are they still in touch now? Do they stay in contact with you as a club and come back and pass on pearls of wisdom? Uh, Louise does sometimes um, donate some of her sponsored kit to us. Um, Anne and Julie Holman and Femi, the minute I ask them, they'll come and help us out. Kelly is a little bit busy now. She is, yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, I'm sure they would. They, they're, they're life members, so they, yeah, they will come along and, and help us out. I'm absolutely sure. And this is the first year of uh, the new club, 
Peter Renine Valley. And uh, I know you've got some nice new kit as well, I was told today, that you've ordered from Cookery. Tell us a bit more about how the club has gone in the first year or so. You wouldn't have thought we'd been two separate clubs. It came together very, very easily and very, very quickly. It helped that uh, the young people, especially who don't have the boundaries, knew one another. So they were already cheering one another on. Coaches were working together well. Uh, The team manager, he was also new at the cross-country job, which helped. Mm. There was no Mm. benchmarks. He brought everybody Mm. in. Well, if you think back, I mean, two powerful clubs anyway. If you unite as one, goodness knows what you could achieve, you know, domestically uh, in terms of team athletics and also utilising the expertise amongst the coaches and the volunteers to kind of make things bigger, better and more successful. Goodness knows what the next six to 12 months will bring with COVID-19. We're obviously still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, What are your thoughts on everything that's happening around us as a sport at the moment? I think personally we as a sport we are probably struggling a little bit but that is just guidelines and we're doing our best to adhere to all the guidelines and get people out there it's just an awful awful time for everybody Um, but I think we'll we'll come through it the sport will survive leaders are having to look at other sports what are they doing are they doing anything better than us they hopefully are looking at us are we doing anything better than them here we're having to raise our voices to get over the two meters we are coming together really well and from you russ final words final thoughts you're looking at the young people here today not all of them will be runners but they are sportsmen of the future Mm. we produce a lot of runners who go on and do a lot of other sports Mm. I would like to see, uh, and it may not be in your realms, but I would like to see nationally more of a push to help the young people get out and train. Mm. The COVID-19 has restricted that. I feel that the professional sport has been uh, accommodated and been allowed to carry Mm. on. Mm. I'd like to have seen the younger end, the grassroots end, also been accommodated so we could then build the future for British sport. We all know the power of sport and what it can give to younger people, older people, arguably to starve off illness and afflictions. And uh, I guess we all have our personal views on the order of priorities in terms of reopening facilities and what have you. It's good that we're getting back to some sort of new normal. But thank you for everything that you're doing in the Peterborough and surrounding area, but also for our sport. Thank you and uh, good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Well, really good to get out and hear what it's been like for Peter Brinine Valley, no doubt. Some clubs up and down the country empathising with some of the thoughts that have been shared there. Let's go back to Phil Sessman now. He's actually found that working the same amount of shifts in A&E alongside not being able to socialise or visit family as he normally would means that he's been able to put a good block of training together. Add to that the fact that as a distance runner he's been able to go out and run. But he's also had a very helpful companion alongside and I'm not just talking about Coach Andy Henderson. I've got a dog called Kipchoge, um, who does most of my easy running with me. Brilliant. What kind of dog is Kipchoge? So she's a um, 20-month-old spaniel crossed with a Vizsla, which is built fairly well for the running. Um, if anyone wants to give her a follow on Strava, it's Kipchoge Sessman. <laughs> I didn't know you could have dogs with Strava accounts. Yeah, well, you can have one with a Strava account, um, but I learned at Christmas you can't have one with a Parkrun account. <laughs> she did run in her, under her own name in um, at Christmas Day Parkrun, and that promptly got deleted. So 
they're not allowed to have that. Ah, well, right. There's obviously the frustration of, of not being able to, to focus on your athletics as much as you wanted. Uh, so does that energy now all go into 2021? Yeah, definitely looking forward, there's, there's going to be more focus on next year. But I, I'm trying to, I'm 27 now, so I'm trying not to keep thinking, oh, let's build on this year and really attack next year. I'm, I'm trying to kind of really attack the year I'm in, um, I think, now. There could be lots of selection opportunities available. You mentioned the Europeans starting off indoors, and I know you've had uh, some success at the British Indoor Championships, a couple of silver medals, I believe. So there's perhaps a chance of uh, indoor selection and then, then plenty of stuff outdoors as well. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be difficult next year. Um, my coach and I had kind of come up with a long-term plan to stepping up in distance. Um, and that, that kind of meant maybe aiming in February for a half marathon rather than the indoor season, like I usually do. But obviously with two competitions to aim for, and I'm still feeling like I'm, I'm getting fitter and faster on the track stuff, it may be a bit too hard to pass up that, that opportunity to try and try for a team there. Um, so I haven't decided yet, but definitely going outdoors, give things a go, try and run a fast 10,000 on track and then target the 5,000 at the British Championships and Olympic trials and, and just kind of see what I can do. Yeah, because you made a bit of a breakthrough of a, of a 5,000, didn't you, last year? I think 13.45 that you ran, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that seemed to be getting better. Um, and I ran a couple of right ones on the road as well. British Championships in September, is that in your sights? That's, that's probably the main, the main goal at the moment. Doing a lot, of, a lot of training on the track, a lot of miles on the roads. Um, and that's, that's kind of what's exciting me at the moment. I've not medalled at the British Outdoor Championships yet. So that's, that's the goal, go there and, and get myself a medal. In terms of training now, are things functioning sort of close to normal now? I wouldn't say they're close to normal. Um, I'd say we're, it was a really big kind of bonus, I'd say, um, when they said that we could start exercising together. Um, so the, those first few weeks of lockdown were pretty tough, um, just being solo and doing most of my or almost all my training from home rather than um, driving to the canal or driving to one of the local tracks. By now, yeah, we, we, we're very lucky that Huddersfield Council um, have opened their facility throughout most of lockdown and keep it to small groups. Um, and that, that seems to be working pretty well here in Leeds. What sort of training were you able to do at home? I was just doing a lot of single day runs on, on the trails and there was a cinder track about four miles away. So that would um, lead to some very wobbly warm downs. <laughs> Echoes of, of the past, British distance running greatness and chariots of fire and all that. I know. I, and I did, I did at the time think, how on earth are they running so quick on these tracks? <laughs> when you get used to it, you can still move fairly well on them um, as long as they're pretty firm and compact. Well, there you go. A&E, dogs, cinder tracks, British championships, pretty much everything covered then in 20 minutes with Phil Sessman. Do let us know, perhaps someone else that should be featured on this podcast. Maybe you'd like to be featured, your club, or any questions that you would like answering by England Athletics. You can get in touch on the usual channels, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or the contact form on our website. For now, though, until next time, it's goodbye.